All right, before we do anything, we're going to pray, and then we're going to hit it hard. God, uh, thank you for today, Lord. Thank you for a Sunday, Father, to celebrate. Father, thank you as we've said that this is a party, Father. Uh, there are plenty of parties going on this Christmas season. Father, may today be all about you. Uh, may we party because we can exist, that we can have salvation, where we can celebrate, that we have a reason to celebrate, Father, and that is you. Father, would you be made known today? Thank you for using, Father, people of lowly circumstances like myself, Father, to be used for your purposes. Thank you, Father, for the grace that you show in that manner. In your name, amen. I am a uh, pretty uh, competitive person, and uh, one of the things that I guess I have learned over my uh, 21 years of life is, uh, that's a joke, uh, over my years of life is that it doesn't really matter how you compete, like if there's a judge involved, like you, you play the judge, if that makes any sense. Uh, and so here's how this played out. I went to Walmart the other day, and uh, like right in the very beginning, they have like those cookie making kits. Have you ever seen those? And uh, I was with all my, all my kids, and of course, it's probably like the world's worst cookies, but they had to have them. Uh, and so I was like, fine, we spent the $7, bought a cookie making kit, brought it home, and I was like, okay, each one of you guys are going to make a cookie, I'm going to make a cookie, we're going to decorate it, and when mom gets home, she will be the judge as to who made the best cookie. Now, I knew it was an uphill battle because Reagan, who was two, she could just like slobber on a cookie and she's going to win because she's just so cute and adorable, right? And I'm, I don't care who I'm competing against, I'm going to win even if it's my own kids. And uh, so I knew Ava was going to be the judge, so I played to win the game, and so this was my cookie. All right? I love Ava. And I won. So, uh, and to their, yeah, whatever, I did win. <laughs> she did vote me, and they were not happy about that. But you play, to, you play to win, you play the judge. And so here's how this played out in college. I went to Taylor University uh, many moons ago. And uh, when I got there, I, one of my first classes was a, a public speaking class. Now, given my profession, uh, you should think that I should have killed that class. I did all right in it. And uh, so there I am, my freshman year. I'm on the soccer team trying to meet people. And uh, this is my group of buddies. And uh, so in that class, the teacher said, we're going to give a final presentation. You have to debate who's the greatest human being ever to walk on the planet. And you can't use anybody from the Bible because it was a Christian school. So I thought to myself, hmm, how can I play this to my benefit? The class is going to be judging. And I'm like, I'm new. I want to meet some girls. It's a Christian school. So how can I give a presentation, play the room, but also maybe get a number out of this, you know? And, uh, and so I went with the most logical Christian school speech debate ever. I said, here's the deal. I'm going to debate that Billy Graham is the greatest human being ever to walk the planet. I lost. I didn't even come in the top three. The guy that won uh, picked Bono, and uh, he, did, he did a much better job defining greatness. He did a much better job of playing the room. A bunch of college kids, you two, was, is huge, and, uh, and he won. Today, greatness is also being debated, especially this Christmas season. We're striving for a great Christmas season. We're striving for a great dinner, great family. We're striving for greatness, to have the greatest Christmas season possible. 
Today, what I hope to accomplish, what I hope to look at is how we might need to redefine greatness in order, in order to have a great Christmas season. So we're going to pick up looking at the birth of Jesus, the book of Matthew. It says, in those days, Caesar Augustus issued a decree that a census should be taken of the entire Roman world. This was the first census that took place while Cornelius was governor in Syria. And every, everyone went their own, to their own town to register. Now, Caesar is not only mentioned in this passage to give us a, a time frame as to when this is taking place, but there's a juxtaposition. There's, there's two people that are going to be at play that define greatness two different ways. Caesar was a self-proclaimed uh, great man. He, he proclaimed himself to be savior of the world. In fact, when he died, he was, when he was buried, he had a savior of the world uh, listed over his tombstone. And, uh, and, and he went as far as when Halley's Comet was flying in the sky, he said that it was Caesar Augustus uh, going in, or Julius Caesar, I'm sorry, going into heaven uh, so that he would have a claim at deity. He would have a, clean, a claim as God, as a God, and the people bought into his self-proclaimed God status. Augustus means supreme ruler. They took faith. They took, they took, uh, they took comfort in that gods don't die. They just go to be with the gods. And they saw him as such. He ruled. He, he, there was a, a sense of peace while he ruled, but it was a forced peace. It was, if you mess with me, I will end you. <laughs> that was that type of a peace. So he wasn't humble, he wasn't reluctant, and so he was considered great. How do you define greatness? What will make Christmas great for you? What would make today, today great for you? Are you defining greatness correctly? When it comes to a birth, would we see something like this as the definition of great? That didn't happen to me. I had all three kids at community. I think my, I think my first kid went home in a Chevy Aveo or a Hyundai Elantra, not a Land Rover, never even been in a Land Rover. Uh, when Ava and I walked out of the hospital, there wasn't a crowd 20 deep taking pictures. And uh, there surely uh, wasn't a helicopter. That video goes on for like seven minutes of a helicopter flying over the car, following the car. Like, what a waste of time and money. Now, that perhaps that child is great. There is an element of greatness to that. Some of us maybe stayed up late when they got married. Remember that? That was like at 2 a.m. or something like that. My wife set the alarm. She was all awake watching that spectacle of a wedding. 
it's great. But wouldn't we say also that it's great that a mom maybe was pregnant under unfortunate circumstances, made a decision to, to keep the kid, goes into the hospital, there's no one there with her. She leaves the hospital alone and goes back, maybe working two jobs, maybe going to school to, to provide for her, her child. There's no fanfare like that. Wouldn't we look at a situation similar to that and, and if we're honest, say, that's great? Perhaps we should be applauding and be in awe of the same things that God finds to be great. So our passage then will go on. Joseph, so Joseph also went up from the town of Nazareth in Galilee into Judea in Bethlehem, the town of David, because he belonged to the house of, of the line of David. And he went there to register with Mary, who was pledged to be married to him and was expecting a child. This is awesome. See, back in, in Micah 5, through a prophet, it's the, the Savior of the world is going to be born in Bethlehem. But, but Mary, Joseph, they're in Nazareth. How are you going to get from Nazareth to Bethlehem? There's an there's a, there's a, a elevation drop of almost 2,400 feet. Like, this is, they aren't, like you don't know, typically travel there. So what does God do? He uses something secular, something of, of the government, not a Christian government, to move these people to where he had said about 700 years prior, this is where the child is going to be born. So he uses things of the world to accomplish his purposes. It's awesome. God isn't surprised when Caesar Augustus says, hey, there's a new degree. God isn't up there being like, oh, how am I going to spin this? He's using Augustus to accomplish his own plans. So even though God has a plan, isn't it a little inconvenient? <laughs> we said Mary's 12, 13 years old. Joseph, 17, 18 years old. This is their first go-around, <laughs> this whole kid thing. <laughs> to travel some distance, to drop an elevation some 2,400 square feet or so, that's a bumpy, windy road probably on a donkey. You know what probably happened at the end of the trip? You're probably wiping tinkle off the donkey. Because <laughs> if you're nine months pregnant, you start losing certain things. Uh, just, you know, if we're going to be real for a second. <laughs> like, I have three kids. My dad's here from New Hampshire. <laughs> I would have loved to have visited my parents in the ninth, mo ninth month of our pregnancies. <laughs> Can you imagine going to Ava and being like, hey, let's hop in the car and drive up to New Hampshire, and she's nine months pregnant. She's going to kick me. You don't, you don't do that. We'll be stopping to pee every four mile markers. <laughs> but that's the situation that Mary and Joseph find themselves in. Let's not get so, let's not romanticize. Let's, let's, not, let's not get so disconnected from the Christmas story that we use, lose the reality of it. Here's, here's a 12, 13-year-old girl that's saying, God, I'm going to obey you, and now you're moving me. Now, by law, we have to move. We have to travel some distance, probably on a donkey, on our camel, whatever it might be, but travel. Nothing about this is convenient, but God's accomplishing his purposes. See, sometimes we can go about this where we look at God and we say, God, we're going to obey you. And the road is bumpy. The road is hard. 
and we're looking at God saying, God, what's going on? And we lose sight at the fact that God might be choosing, instead of making the bumpy road nice and clear, nice and smooth, perhaps he's strengthening us, strengthening us through his own power, through his own might, through his own greatness. He's strengthening us to handle the bumpy road and teaching us a lesson through it. So perhaps a bumpy road actually points to the hand of God. We, uh, my third daughter, my last kid, done, and uh, uh, we, so we have uh, Brady or Landon, he's seven, Landon is like, I don't know, five or so, five, he's five, yes, he's five, uh, Brady, and then we have Reagan, and uh, she's two, and uh, so when Reagan was born, uh, we were in the process of starting this church, and uh, we had bought a house, and long gone are the days of buying a house and closing on a house all the same day, we come to find out, like some of the laws have changed, the whole house buying thing, and so there was, there ended up being like a month gap between selling our house and buying a new house, and, uh, and we have at that point probably a five-month-old child. And so we're like, well, what are we going to do? Well, my dad is here. He's the head coach of Southern New Hampshire University men's and women's tennis team. Uh, you can celebrate him. He's won, like, a lot of titles. And uh, so uh, there you go. Thanks for coming. And, uh, and so from New Hampshire, my wife is from West Virginia. Like, what are we going to do for this month? And, uh, God, we're buying a house. We're moving close to the Tom's River because we want to start this church. God, we, we, our house, our little, uh, little house from Barnegada won't really help us to start this church. We can't really host more than, like, maybe five people in the house. How are we going to have meetings and start this church? Yada, yada, yada. So we're moving up to Tom's River. Now we have this month gap. And, and so we find somebody from Bayside Chapel that said, hey, you can move, in, move on to Long Beach Island, uh, which would sound awesome if it was in the summer. But in the winter, it was, like, 10 degrees and felt like it was not 10 degrees way. It felt like Alaska on the island. And, and it had like this little heater, like this little, like, little heater. And I have a six-month-old child, and, and, and it was awful, and, but a blessing, but awful. And then the week that we're going to buy the house, we're settling, we're whatever, signing papers on a Friday. I think it was Tuesday. My van died. Like, took it, to the, took it to the person, the mechanic, and they said, this isn't worth putting any money in. It's dead. I have five family members, three kids. Do, can you, you, you parents, can you imagine putting a newborn child, a six-year-old at the time, a four-year-old at the time, in a little five-seater, uh, like, Hyundai Elantra-type car? Like, that's a picture of what hell is going to look like. And that was my week trying to settle, selling this house, buying this house and whatnot. And then we move into the house and there's a giant snowstorm that weekend. We can't do anything with our credit because we're buying a house. And so we couldn't, we had to just deal with, actually it was a, a, a Toyota Corolla that we had to just deal with. Until Monday morning when we can go and work out a new car deal. And I looked at him like, God, what, what are you doing? God, we're, we're obeying you. God, we're, we're doing, we're, we have you in mind for all of this. And you know what was cool was that through, that through those circumstances, like hard family circumstances, God strengthened our marriage. Our kids loved it. They didn't have a clue that life was hard. Even though they were being a nightmare, they loved it being a nightmare. It was great for them. We look back and we're like, we can see the blessings we, that we didn't see in the midst of it. Did you know this church? We, our kids' ministry, you got kids, you drop them off in the cafeteria. 
You know the curveball that God threw us <laughs> Thursday before we launched on a Sunday? We had five classrooms down the hallway over there that we were going to have our children's ministry in. We spent thousands and thousands of dollars on children's ministry. And then the Thursday before, the school calls and says, you can't have those classrooms. We'll give you for free those, those cafeterias. It cost us an extra $5,000 right before we launched. <laughs> and you know, you know what? I can look back, even though that was like maybe perhaps the most stressful 72 hours of my life. How awesome is it to have those classrooms? Right now, the children's ministry is partying. Right now, with everything they were doing from Parents' Night Out, they never, never would have been able to do that in four or five little classrooms. God had a hand in it. And so he had a hand in bringing Mary and Joseph to Bethlehem. So is life hard for you this Christmas season? You know what our instinct is? Is to go to a resentful place. I've never met met a resentful person that is equally content. So are you in a place of resentment this Christmas season? It's likely you won't find contentment around that corner. So what are you going to do with your resentment? Perhaps we need a God-sized perspective when the road is bumpy. Because here's what Mary would say. I don't think Mary would have traded the hard road. I don't think when Mary is, is holding newborn Jesus in her arms, when shepherds come in singing praises and, and worshiping this child, I don't think she would have traded it. And I surely wouldn't have traded that month with my wife and my kids at that bungalow on all LBI. Because I was praying, God, strengthen my family. God, strengthen us as a church. If I'm praying that, how ridiculous would it be when, I, when God says, I'll, I'll give you a situation to make you stronger? You want to be courageous? I'll give you a situation that will make you stronger. Praise God for those situations as we get to apply his strength, his greatness. So our passage now concludes with, while they were there, the time came for the baby to be born. And she gave birth to her firstborn, a son. She wrapped him in, in the cloth and, and placed him in, in a manger. Because there was no guest room available for them. Now, now, how inconvenient of a situation, the trouble in itself. But now they're there. Everybody, this is a royal city. So now there's thousands and thousands of people coming upon this, this little rink-a-dink city that, that you would never know if it wasn't for Jesus. Thousands of there, there. There's no, all the hotels are now taken up. Now, now even like the truck stop. So when they say no room in the inn, that's more like a, like a truck stop. There's not even a place for a truck stop type setting for Mary and Joseph to, to find a, a place of resting. So, they, so with common hospitality in that day, people have to open up their homes by, by law, by the culture, by whatever. There's no room even in people's homes. And so they find somebody that says, you can go to the barn, the stable, animals, germs. You talk about parents and like their craziness with germs. Imagine having your kid in a barn with the hay and the pigs. And then you have to put your newborn baby in a manger. A manger, again, we have like those blow-up things outside of our house or the, or the plastic nativity scenes that we, and it's all glorious, it's all beautiful. But let's not lose sight, that's probably a little hole inside of a cave. Jo Mary's water probably breaks, and Joseph's not a doctor. He's a carpenter. He's like, you want me to whittle a little manger? I can whittle you a little manger, but Mary's water breaks, and all of a sudden he's like, what do I do? 
Wouldn't you? He, he probably sees this feeding trough. He, he probably tips it, tips it over. He probably is throwing all this garbage of food out of it that, that was going to be given to the pigs. He, he's hustling and bustling, try, trying to find the hay. Let's grab some hay. Let's, let's wipe perhaps some dung off of it. Let's kick away the dung. Because they're in a barn. Are we so removed from the scene? Are we so removed from the situation that we, that we lose sight of how hard that must have been? You're, you're 13 or 17 years old. Mom isn't around. Mom isn't there to hold your hair or to hold your hand. You're alone with your carpenter of a husband giving birth. Is it what you would expect of Augustus to be born? No, you would expect a palace. You would expect the Land Rover. Herod? No. It's not even what you would expect of the common Jewish kid. But the king of kings, lord of lords, is born into a situation like that. There's no greater king. Because he's king for all. See, if he's going to be born, he's not going to be born in a palace where he can't really relate to anybody. Can you relate to being born in a palace? But he's born in the most humble of circumstances. Because he's king for all. Mary and Joseph are probably feeling so insufficient. They're feeling so useless. They're feeling so, like, out of their element. Any new parents? Can you relate? And here's the lesson that we have just by looking at the scene. No matter how insufficient one feels, sufficiency is found in the manger. Sufficiency is found in Jesus. Everything Mary and Joseph need is right there in the manger. He's everything. And so they can have a great season. The event can be found to be great because Jesus is there and he's born, relating to the lowliest of lowliest people because he came for all. So let's, let's defend, let's argue greatness. Is, is greatness Augustus or is greatness Jesus? We argue greatness all the time. What would make this season, what would make this Christmas season great? I named all my kids after greatness. Landon, Brady, and Reagan. Landon was born during the two World Cups ago when Landon Donovan was a superstar during the World Cup. And we're like, we were watching a game and Abel, I was like, Landon Donovan is killing it. I looked at Abel and I was like, that's it. He's going to be named Landon. And she said, Okay. And so my firstborn is named Landon. Now, now, I'm from New Hampshire. Again, my dad coaches at Southern New Hampshire University. So I grew up in New England. And so my secondborn son is named after the GOAT, greatest of all time, Tom Brady. All right. I actually had somebody give me the advice when I was starting this church that I should renounce all of my sports teams from New England to relate to the people that I'm ministering to. And I was like, to heck with that. I was like, that would make me the biggest hypocrite in the world. And then Reagan is named after the greatest president of all time. We kind of just say that. We really actually are Irish, and we just like the name Reagan, but we needed something about greatness. If you ask me anything about Ronald Reagan, I don't know anything outside of that he was a drinking game for Republicans during the election, that every time Reagan was mentioned, you had to take a shot or something. 
I didn't play, but I heard about it. And, uh, but we argue greatness all the time. Greatness is a hashtag used on Instagram almost 3 million times, 2.9 million times it's used on, on Instagram. You, hashtag, you search it right now, you'll find it. We argue greatness. We argue who's the greatest quarterback of all time. We argue who's the greatest basketball player, LeBron or Michael? Who's the greatest hitter? Who's the great, what's the greatest movie? What's the greatest Christmas movie? What's the greatest Christmas sweater? Mine. And what's the great, who's the greatest singer? The, the king of pop or the king of rock? It's the greatest decade of music. When I was in high school, we were debating who was better, Tupac or Biggie? Biggie! I was more of a Tupac guy. But we argued those types of things. Define greatness. So, out of the mouth of the goat, check this out. Tom Brady, the quarterback of the New England Patriots, is not only one of the NFL's best players, he's one of the NFL's great stories. At the tender age of 30, he has already won three Super Bowls, an accomplishment that ranks him with some of the best quarterbacks ever to play the game. And he's having one of the greatest seasons in pro football history. When we first reported on him back in 2005, he seemed underrated and almost overlooked. He doesn't have the arm of Peyton Manning, and he doesn't have tattoos, and he doesn't take steroids, and he's never held out for more money. All he knows how to do is win. <laughs> it's what you always wanted. You're right. You're right. It has. And I didn't think it came with all the other baggage, though. In addition to his success on the field and his sex appeal off it, there is also the $60 million 10-year contract to play with the Patriots. I mean, I'm making more money now than I ever thought I could ever make playing football. <laughs> but with all that money, fame, and career accomplishments, we were surprised to hear this from him. Why do I have three Super Bowl rings and, and still think there's something greater out there for me? I mean, maybe a lot of people would say, hey, man, this is what it is. I reached my goal, my dream, my life is... Me, I thank God. It's got to be more than this. What's the answer? I wish I knew. I wish I knew. Out of the mouth of the goat. Now, I don't share that just to be funny. I think that's a powerful statement. We're striving after greatness. Some of us are trying to achieve greatness. You would look at that man uh, married to uh, Giselle and, and has all the money in the world, has this giant house, has, has kids, has now five Super Bowl rings. If it wasn't for the stinking giants, it would be seven Super Bowl rings. Yeah, yeah, I gave you your little plug. Yeah, whatever. And uh, stupid Eli, how's that working out? And... Uh, but he's great. He has everything. Uh, anybody would look at his life and be like, on paper, that is great. I want that. And here he is out of his own mouth saying, isn't there more? I haven't found greatness yet. Greatness is found in the manger. You will never find greatness until you find Jesus. And so our thought for the day, our, our example of Jesus is this, that greatness, greatness is born in humility. Greatness isn't born how you and I define greatness. Greatness is born in humility. Chuck Swindoll, I loved how he said it, so I didn't want to completely rip him off. He said it this way. Imagine the position, you are a supreme power over everything. You are worshipped. There is no pain, there is no want, there are no needs. You are entirely content. You spoke the world into existence. Then they rebelled, making a mess. So out of 
love for your people, you leave. You devised the plan, you left. You left that all to become a human being. Entered into the mess. And what a mess you entered into. You voluntarily exited eternity to become a helpless human in a feeding trough. You would experience pain, suffer, heartache, disappointments, struggles, temptations. Bear with the injustices and willingly subject yourself to an awful, to the awful consequences of sin. You chose sacrifice. What happens to Mary and Joseph is just a foreshadowing of the injustice. The innocent son of God would endure on our behalf. Perhaps as we've glamorized Christmas... We've all sight of the great meaning of Christmas. Yes, I'm excited to party. We're going to sing some worship songs here in a second. We had that funny little rap and drummer boy thingy going on. We have the photo. We have all the glitz and glamour. But it's all for nothing if we don't lift the name of Jesus. If we don't lift the name of Jesus, then we're no different than anybody else. So we lift the name of Jesus. We celebrate because greatness is born in humility. Jesus left the glamour of heaven to be born in a feeding trough and be king of the world. My hope for you this, this season is that you wouldn't let your surroundings determine your greatness, determine what greatness is. Mary and Joseph are sitting there with a baby and hay and cows and, and camels and, and goats and, and all this stuff. Imagine if they sat there and said, well, I'm going to be defined by my surroundings. They're probably feeling pretty lowly, alone, awful. But their surroundings don't define what great is. Their surroundings don't define who they are. Your surroundings, when you walked in here, don't define you. Your, that, that perfect Christmas meal, whether it's perfect or whether you burn the ham. What do you have at, at Christmas? Is it uh, prime rib or whatever? Like, Whatever it is, whatever meat you're supposed to have, eat some fish, whatever. Just, that doesn't define who you are. Surroundings don't define us. Jesus defines us. And so if we're striving after Jesus, we'll always find greatness because Jesus is great. So perhaps this Christmas season, we need to start redefining what greatness is. I wanted to write a book some, some years ago, and I talked to some editors, and they said, well, if you want to write a book, you need at least... You need a private Facebook page with at least 10,000 followers. You need 10,000 followers on Instagram, and you need 10,000 followers on Twitter, and then we might have a conversation with you. I was like, that is the stupidest thing I've ever heard. And then this week, uh, this week I got this picture on my, on my Facebook that on my posts, not me individually, on my posts, I've had 95,000 likes. <laughs> You're in, the, you're in the midst of greatness, did you know? And, uh, and, uh, and like, for a second, you, like, look at that. You're like, how in the world is that? Like, what? And, uh, and, then I'm pre and then I'm preaching, and I'm, like, talking about Jesus and, like, the manger and everything. You're like, oh, reality check. That's nothing. <laughs> and, and I thought for a second, if I want to be defined by greatness, I'm never going to lead with, you know how many likes I got on Facebook? That'll never be my lead. If I want to be defined by greatness, my tombstone is never going to say, well, here goes a man that had 95,000 likes on Facebook. 
that's the last thing I want to be known for. I want Wellspring to be known in the community. Here's what I want us to be known for. That we relentlessly love the community. Igniting a craving for Jesus. That's important. So lift the name of a church, but lift the name of a Messiah. My bank account will never define me. My social resume will never define me. My surroundings don't define me. It's really simple. Jesus defines us. We celebrate simplicity. Let's boil it all down. Jesus is great. He is humble. And he defines greatness for us this Christmas season. So for my challenge for us today is to redefine greatness and then strive for greatness this Christmas season. If you don't get to all the decorations, it's okay. If you have to order out and get Chinese food for Christmas dinner, it's okay. Greatness is found in Jesus. Matthew 5.19 says, Therefore, whoever relaxes one of the least of these commandments and teaches others to do the same will be called the least in the kingdom of heaven. But whoever does them and teaches them will be called what? Great in the kingdom of, of heaven. So what will be great for you and I if we're going to die in our tombstones? What would be great is a life marked out by humble obedience to the Lord. That is great. I want my kids to live into their names and be considered great. But it's not going to be if they're some pro athlete. That will never make them great. And they're not going to be great if they become some great politician. They're never going to be great if they're some, some great uh, scholar. Or something. Like that does not define greatness. They will be marked as great. If they live a life of obedience to Jesus. That's what I want for my kids. I want them to one day stand before God, not too soon, but one day stand before God and hear, well done, well done, well done. I want to live a great life. I want to live a great life of obedience where I hear, well done from Jesus himself. So greatness this Christmas season is perhaps the mom working two jobs. I can't buy the new Xbox. I can't buy the new iPhone, X10, whatever. It's the mom working two jobs that puts food on the table. Well done. It's the construction worker that has an opportunity to rip somebody off because they, they gave a quote and the, and the part came in cheaper and they decide, you know what, I'm going to, I'm going to change my quote in their benefit and, and, and price the job for less. Well done. It's a school teacher working more hours so that their kids can learn, so that their kids can have, maybe, maybe providing things themselves. That's greatness. We have the opportunity now. Now that we've reflected on the greatness of Jesus, to now truly worship Jesus in all of his greatness. Perhaps we redefine this Christmas season to make Jesus the focus. Let's focus on him now in our time of worship.